Welcome to Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Robbie Straczynski, and thanks so much for joining us on episode number 43 of Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town. Today's guest is, of course, best known for winning the 2004 WSOP main event for $5 million, but has since proven to be one of the most consistently successful players on the tournament circuit with almost $3 million in winnings since then. He's one of the most successful players in the history of the Heartland Poker Tour, where in 2012, he won four main events in the span of less than five months. He's also a successful cash game player, a proficient mixed game player, a published poker strategy author, and an overall great ambassador for the game of poker. Fossil man, Greg Raymer, welcome to the Cards Chat podcast. Well, thanks. I'm glad to be here. I'm going to figure out a way to like hire you to like precede me into every room I enter. <laughs> and just, you know, you can just say that to, to the world for me. Well, you know, you've heard awesome. that description that, uh, you know, over, over the years, those are some accolades. You know, you put those stuff in, in your trophy case and it's the genuine truth. So we're all about that. And uh, it's really, really cool to, to speak to you for the first time. My pleasure. Glad to be on the show. Cool. Uh, well, first thing I've got to ask you, Greg, um, and, and you'll understand why I'm asking you this. Where exactly are you right now? I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina. Okay. I was a full-time patent attorney for about 12 years before I won the main event. Right. And my job, uh, the last like half of that career, I was working in-house for Pfizer and I do patent law. And so I was basically helping get patents on some of their biotech inventions. And then I win the main event and I'm, you know, traveling around all the time. My right. wife said, look, at you're on the road. We can live anywhere near an airport. I want better weather. Uh-huh. And, and this was 05. And so back then, the only places in America that had like the better weather and like big poker games were Vegas and L.A. Right. Florida didn't yet have, you know, their current status with sure. lots of poker rooms. And they had they had poker rooms, but it was like something like hundred dollar maximum pot yep. size or mm -hmm. something like mm -hmm. that. Um, you know, so that wasn't a consideration for poker. And we just didn't want to live in Vegas or L.A. So we ignored poker and picked Raleigh as a great place to live. And it has been, and our, you know, our daughter grew up here and, uh, you know, she loved it and we've loved it and still here now. It's actually, I've lived here longer than any place I've lived my entire life. That's excellent. Well, I mean, the reason I asked you where you are is because I know you're always, you're playing all over the States. You're crushing the mid-major circuit. And of course you've been to hundreds uh, if not even more, uh, casinos all around the country, around the world. Yeah. Um, how, how many would you say you've played in? How many casinos? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it might not be 100 because, you know, a okay. lot of times you're kind of back in the same place. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I've certainly played in like, let's say, less than half of the poker rooms in Vegas. Oh, really? Okay. A, well, I mean, there's a bunch that just, you know, they don't ever do big tournament series. Mm -hmm. And... And if I was like looking for mixed games, it's, you know, like I'm not going to go to Sam's town right. you know, to, to, play, to play a mixed game. So, right. I mean, nothing against that poker room. I haven't been there. I obviously, I don't have any reason to, I'm not trying to put them down. It might be a wonderful place. Um, but, you know, the majority of the poker rooms in Vegas and the rest of the United States, their cash games are, you know, your typical like one, two, one, three, two, five. Yep. 
Um, and it's mostly No Limit Hold'em. And right. I don't really play that. As I only played No Limit Hold'em really as a tournament game, not as a cash game. Mm-hmm. And so most of those places, if they're not hosting a tournament, there's no real reason for me to go. Right. I guess that so makes I've, sense. I've, yeah. been to, I've, I've been to lots of places, but I, you know, it, it might be under 100. It might be a over. Uh-huh. It's certainly not certainly not several hundred. Okay. Interesting. Uh, do you have a, a favorite among them? No, not really. I mean, I mean, obviously, like the World Series, you know, is my is my favorite. But it's it's going to be my favorite, you know, when it was at Binion's. It's my favorite at Rio. It's I don't know if they move it to the convention center. I don't know if I can say it'll be my favorite. anymore. <laughs> That's going to be a. I hope they don't move it there ever because anywhere on the strip is going to be such an inconvenience trying mm-hmm. to get in and out. Right. Stuff like that. I mean, I don't stay in a hotel when I'm out there for that period of time. I'm mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm renting a vacation home or, sure. you know, at least, I mean, I used to rent like a full, full, you know, real house with a pool and stuff. Cause my wife and daughter would be spending time with me. Other family and friends would come and go visiting. Um, since my daughter's gotten older and, you know, isn't available in the summer, you know, therefore she and my wife don't really come out. So I'm more of getting like a, just a little one bedroom or efficiency type place, but I still want something with like a kitchen, you know, when I get up in the morning, it's not like going down to the coffee shop to eat. It's like, no, I'll make something for myself. Right. I can have exactly what I want right there, you know, make it, eat it, then go to the Rio. So I just try to get something like that close to the Rio, but I don't want to be in a hotel. And if you are not in one of those strip hotels, where you can easily walk to that convention center, the, the new one they've built behind the link. Yep. Um, it's going to be a major pain in the ass to monorail. try to get in there. Monorail. <laughs> I don't know, maybe, but like, they don't have much. There's not much parking. If you're right. taking an Uber, if you're trying yeah. to like take an Uber or something, that's, you know, like you. it might take you five minutes to get close. And then it's going to take you 20 minutes for the driver to get you all the way to the drop off point. Right. Right. Something I, like that. It's 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 going to be a real nightmare if you're okay. not staying within walking distance. Just as uh, you know, when stuff moved from Binions to the Rio, you know, obviously there was a big change for people who were playing regularly. Then yeah. I guess uh, I guess we'll have to see. I have a fondness for the Rio myself, though. Um, well, sure, and, yeah. and and it's a good facility in most respects because it's easy in and out and everything else. Free but, parking, yeah, sure. Yeah, for the free parking. Um, you know, if you can't get into that parking garage for the convention space because it's full or it's too big of a wait, if you're going to park at one of the other properties and you have to pay for it, yep. now you're paying 20 bucks or whatever to mm-hmm. just, you know, it's like, oh, let's pay an extra 20 in rake. Not, <laughs> exactly. not, what, not, not what most of us want. So sure. I don't know of any good solution. Uh-huh. If it gets to the point where they can't do it at the Rio, Caesars doesn't have any other properties that right. would be good hosts from right. my perspective. Some oh. people would love it to be at the convention here because they're like, well, I was already staying like at places like the link mm-hmm. and some of the, you know, Caesars properties on the strip. Sure. So now I don't have to try to get a shuttle or an Uber to the Rio. I can just walk. Right. So well, for some people, it'll be better. But mm-hmm. Well, part of it, like if it were to move to the convention center, you know, it also kind of sort of means that it outgrew the Rio. So if poker's doing that well, yeah. 
maybe, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, their limitation wasn't so much the space as it was like getting dealers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And right. they were hitting some space limits with like the Colossus and stuff. Sure. You know, they were using what some people called the broom closet up front. Yeah. And there was like a, a, couple a bowling of, alley or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it used to be a bowling alley. Now yeah. it was just like a big storage room. Yep. I mean, someone had the picture of like, here's my table. And behind it was literally like broom handles. Right. I, I, they I were like lean, leaning against the wall. And it's kind of like, well, the brooms were just like, here's like 50 brooms just all in a row. Yeah. Leaning against the wall. And that, that was a few feet behind our table. And I, I think Phil Ivey's day 1C was in there one time also. Accidentally. Yeah, yeah. No. Something um, like that. But I just I mean, it's, you know, it would it would be great if they could move it someplace else then. Sure. Like, but that's off strip, you know, like right. South Point or Orleans or mm-hmm. Red Rock or whatever. Something like that that is a big place with lots of parking. Not on the strip, but yeah. none of those are owned by Caesars. They're not right. going to want to do that. Right. Those are all great hotels. That I've been there. Good. Good. Some some good poker at uh, at South Point in Orleans and and also Red Rock. That's true. Um, yeah. I mean, they're all capable of hosting it. But yeah, I understand. Sure. If I'm the Caesars executive, I'm not right. going to send it to a non-Caesars property. Sure. Of course. Um, well, you know, obviously, you know, the, the poker has now returned. Poker's back since the pandemic ended. You've been to Texas, to San Diego, uh, Mississippi. Uh-huh. So to, to what yep. degree had you been itching to sort of get back on the road and, and, and where are you off to next? Well, I certainly wanted to get back into it, but, you know, I didn't until I was fully vaccinated because okay. I didn't want to get myself killed. I didn't want to yeah. bring it home and, and infect my wife and daughter. Of course. So now that it felt safe enough, I went back out. Um, I'm not sure. I, most likely I'll be heading to Vegas soon. And nice. spending some time out there while they've got these tournament series at like the Wynn and Orleans and Venetian. And uh, of course, I'll be back in the fall uh-huh. to Vegas for the for the World Series. But I'm not 100% sure. So you, yeah, you, playing you, it by ear. Do you usually fly or do you do like road tripping sometimes? If it's close enough, I'll drive. Uh-huh. Like I will, you know, I used to go to like Daytona Beach Kennel Club a lot. And that's something like 10, 10 plus hours of mm-hmm. driving time. And it's the thing though. It's like, well, you know, if I'm going to try to fly down there. I can get a direct flight to Orlando, but then I have to get the rental car and drive for an hour to get there. Right. Or I could fly into uh, Daytona beach, but then I have to get a connecting flight. Mm-hmm. And so either way, it was kind of like, well, if I can drive there in 10 hours, I can fly and it'll take me eight or nine. Right. And then you don't have to wait and three hours in the airport line or anything. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm counting like getting to the airport early and okay, all that right. stuff, but mm-hmm. it's still like, you know, flying was only going to save me an hour or two. Mm-hmm. And now I, you know, have to pay for a rental car and I don't have the flexibility of kind of like, Oh shoot. I busted here early on the last day one. And, you know, if I leave now I could get home at, three in the morning mm-hmm. right kind right. of a thing it's like okay well so i'm not even going to spend the night since i didn't make day two tomorrow i'll just drive home <laughs> here on saturday and you know be done with it right you have um, a lot more flexibility it, that's for sure you know whereas if i book the flight i've probably booked it on the monday or tuesday mm-hmm. something like that and now it's like oh pay a big change fee or whatever and yeah. 
you know, so it's just, it's way more convenient. So if it's like within 12 hours of driving for me here, then I'll probably drive. Nice. Okay. Um, you but said you I'm don't really have... not driving to Vegas. Not right. driving to Vegas. <laughs> you said you don't um, really have like a favorite poker room. Is there something that you particularly look for at all in a poker room that they have, you know, as far as comfort or organization or something like that, or something that when you do go to a room and it's not there, oh, you wish that they would improve? Well, there's tons of little things that are nice, but I think like most poker players, what I want more than anything else is a good game. Hmm. So if, if for whatever reason, if this poker room has great action potential, you know, to make the highest hourly return, then I'm probably going to go there, even if the other poker room has done a better job at all those little things. Mm -hmm. But of course, if you're doing a better job at all the little things, you're probably going to get the action players to come over anyway. Right. So they often will go together. <clears throat> but if for some reason they don't go together, I think I'm in the same group as most of us, where it's just like, give me the action, give me yep. the, the best game, give me the softest games. Right. Um, but I, I love the places that just have the like, you know, like they have self serve, you know, soda and coffee and stuff. Yeah. And it's like I can just walk over there and I don't have to like try to figure out how to tell the the server <clears> that it's like, you know, like yeah, I want the diet coke, but like, give me a splash of that like Mountain Dew for that little extra flavor. You know, it's yeah. like you can't really. How do you place that order and you know they're going to get it wrong? Right. It's going to be it's going to be half Mountain Dew or whatever. <laughs> so those little things, um, uh, you know, the ones that are just doing a better job at, at running stuff, like you don't see that you're next up on the wait list and then you see someone else sitting down in the game because right. they just jump the list right. and no one's stopping them. Um you know, so the people who handle those things and some poker rooms do a great, most poker rooms do a good job on that, but there's some that really do a bad job of handling the wait lists and moving things along and keeping the seats full. And it's also annoying when you're on the wait list and, you know, you see that there's several tables with empty seats and it's like, right. they're not getting filled and yet you've got wait lists for every game. Like, right. Why is it so hard to fill that seat? Like I said, some people do a better job of that than others, and those are all big pluses. So if I if I live somewhere, like if I lived in Vegas where there's all these poker rooms, I'd have a probably have an answer for you. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Or if, even if I lived in like St. Louis and there's three poker rooms, I'd probably have an answer as to which of the three I like best, mm -hmm. and it would probably be because they do those things better. That's interesting because that stuff kind of reflects. It, it would seem to me mostly on cash game play. And, you know, you yep. seem to have found sort of like a, a pretty nice comfort zone in the mid-major, you know, tournament niche. You know, I'm wondering, is there something specific you enjoy about, you know, tours like, like the HPT, the Run Good Series, you know, MSPT? Because that's more on the tournament side of things. Does that relate at all to, to the answer you just gave? Not really. Um, mm. The main reason I've been picking events is because it's kind of like, well, who will comp me stuff? Oh, okay. Who will at least give me a free hotel room if maybe not, you know, other comps or maybe even pay a buy-in or something. And and over the years, it's just happened to be that, like, the casinos where the HPT was going were all much more likely to comp stuff. Nice. So it's like, oh, why do I keep going to Ameristar East Chicago HPT events? Because they'll always give me free room. 
right? <laughs> I like uh, it. At least. And, uh, you know, I went to the event in Texas. they like, oh, we'll give you a f- your first buy-in for free. Awesome. That's um, great. You know, so it's kind of like, do I want to pay or do I want to play this event where I get one a buy-in free or, you know, the free hotel or do I want to go somewhere else? You know, I mean, that just happens to be most of like the WPT poker rooms and casinos aren't going to comp anything. Right. Right. So it's not because it's WPT. It's because it's at that location. And if that location was having an HPT, they still wouldn't comp me anything and I probably wouldn't go. So it's it's not as much the tour as it was the uh, the host casinos. Got it. I like I like that answer a lot actually because I, I was actually going to make the joke before of like well you know past main event champions is you know I don't know twenty thirty of them alive today they should at least you know have an automatic thing wherever they go they should be number one on the wait list you know that should be like a perk but yeah. <laughs> clearly there's still, still some perks that. out there though you know that that's a that's a no, nice there are, thing. there are, there are some but I I, I I've had lots of times where like the person running the list is like, I'll put you next up. You oh. know, kind of like, okay, yeah, yeah, don't tell anyone I'll put you. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Cause like, Oh, Robbie knows he's next up. Right. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, and then all of a sudden he like, here's me getting called for the game. Right. And he's like, you know, so now you're on like Twitter being like, you know, that, you know, bleepity bleep, you know, jump the line on me. And like, it, it isn't worth the, the, the negative publicity right plus it's is is kind of a like I, I think it's a bad policy you know where like if you had certain status at caesars they'll put you up in the top of the list mm-hmm. interesting okay and i'm just like yeah i think that's you know i understand why people above the poker managers are telling them you will do this right but i still think it's a bad policy Mm-hmm. Well, like like I said, you know, like in the introduction, you know, continues to be a great ambassador for poker. That's right. You're you're absolutely right, and there shouldn't be a difference. Doesn't matter if you're you know, if you're Doyle or or, or Greg Raymer or whomever. You know, a list is a list. You got to get there in time or phone it in, and then when your name is called, you got to be there. That's it. Oh, if you count me a free hotel room, that does not take away from the other poker players, right? But exactly. if you if you let me jump the list, it does. Yep. You know, or if you're like, oh, Greg, we'll start the game with you and your three friends four-handed and charge you half rake because mm-hmm. you're short-handed instead of starting another 2-5 game when there's 50 people on that list. I'll mm-hmm. be like, yeah, that seems a little unfair. Right. Well, like let, you're accommodating a few of us instead of, you know, nine of them. Sure. Well, let's turn back the clock just a bit to a time where you probably didn't get comped as much or comped offers. Um, your recorded tournament results go all the way back to 1996, and you banked about $150,000 or so in tournament earnings before you won the main event in 04. I'm kind of wondering, maybe you could tell us all a little bit here um, about your poker playing during that eight to nine year stretch. How often did you play, um, and were you often playing in tournaments, or were you just you know mostly cash games? What was it like? Yeah, sure. you know, those years prior. Well, I'd been playing poker seriously for about 12 years mm-hmm. before I won the main event. Um, my first job as a lawyer, I was in Chicago and I f- kind of randomly found the Rockford Charity Casino. Sure. So that's, they were out, you know, and the max bet is $10 under the charity laws at that yeah. time. And uh, I'd been looking for blackjack games and found that, but it was like, oh, wait, I can't make money counting cards with a $10 max bet. 
where they had poker and I had played with friends in college and stuff. Um, you know, and of course none of us had a clue what we were doing. You know, we were really horrible poker players, but it had always been fun. And so I kind of played for fun on this first visit. And it was kind of like someone says something about pot odds. And I'm thinking like, what's that? Never heard of that before. And, and I went to a used bookstore, bought three books. Two of them were kind of, you know, they were entertaining, but not useful. But the third was The Theory of Poker okay. by Sklansky. Yeah. And, and so I was very fortunate that that was, you know, basically my first real resource to learn how to be a better player. And I was just going back to the Rockford Charity Games playing 3-6 Limit. And then I took a job in San Diego, was there for about three years, uh, mostly playing in Oceanside. But occasionally I would, um, like, ride up to L.A. for the day because there was a tournament going on at the bike or the commerce or something and uh, was growing my bankroll. That's when I started doing the fossils and got the nickname. Uh-huh. And, you know, I was playing maybe 10, 20 limit, you know, occasionally I would take a shot. They had a pot limit hold'em game in Oceanside when uh-huh. I lived there. Oh, they don't see and that I would take, spread that often anymore. Pot it was like, it was like either two, five or three, five blinds. And the minimum buying was only a hundred bucks. Wow. Wow. And, uh, you know, so I'd take a shot at it for a hundred bucks every now and then that was like my first big win was like winning like 22 or $2,300 in that game. Nice. Like I, I came home late at night, like three in the morning, my wife's asleep and I wake her up by like sprinkling a hundred dollar bills on her, you know, and she's waking up. What, what? You know? I love it. And I'm like, look at all this. <laughs> you know? That's awesome. But, uh, but then I took my last job as a lawyer for working for Pfizer in Connecticut. So I was near Foxwoods. Mm-hmm. I would play there and they had a great tournament, no limit holding tournament every Tuesday night. And I used to win that thing like three, four, five times a year. Mm. Nice. I'd, I'd be entering it like 40 times. You know, I'd be winning it maybe close to 10% of the times I entered and the field size was wow. like, it would start off like 50 to 100 when I first moved there in 98. And then it got to the point where there'd be 200 or even 300 people. Right. And I'm still I'm still winning it several times a year because people right. were really bad at poker back then before the poker boom. Right. And not just cashing, and, winning the tournament. That's that's pretty amazing. Oh, yeah. I don't I mean, none of that stuff was on Hendon Mob. Right. And I don't and I never I don't have like the exact records of every time I played that tournament. But I would guess that. If I made the final table, I probably won it 60% of the time that I got there. Wow. Um, You know, because it was just people just played really bad back then. Mm -hmm. It was really the main answer to it. But uh, um, so I was playing cash. Like I would go Tuesdays and I would play that tournament. I'd go either Friday or Saturday, play cash. Again, I'm building up my bankroll more and more at this time. And by the time I won the main event, my main cash game at Foxwoods was 75-150 mixed. Nice, nice. Oh, very cool. Well, you mentioned that you're not really you know, mostly a holding player. You're mostly a mixed game player. You know, you're, you're speaking to, you're preaching to the choir with me. I'm big into mixed games. I know a lot Wonderful. of members of our Cards Check community are into mixed games. Um, Action Raz. Action Raz. Action Raz is the next new hot mixed game. Okay. Well, how, how is it that you got into mixed games specifically? <laughs> Obviously, you're not a, a product of the moneymaker boom. You've been playing long beforehand. So why the mix? Um, I don't know if I have a great answer for that. I think it's just that 
like especially let's say after I won the main event, if I was playing cash like in Vegas, LA, places that had these games, it would be like 400, 800 mix. And you're mm-hmm. playing, you know, we didn't quite yet have things like Badusi and Badesi and Super Studs, but we did have triple draw Badoogie. Oh, you know, and then you'd be playing Omaha High Low, Stud High Low. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe hold them. Um, and what I always found in any mix game was that uh, very seldom did I think like, oh, triple draw. I'm the best of all these people at triple draw. But I often felt like I was second or third best. Okay. And I was, but then I also felt like I was probably second or third best at like every game we were playing. Right. And then I wasn't, you know, whereas like, oh, this guy, like I got to admit, he's better than me at triple draw. But he sucks at Omaha High Low. <laughs> like he does some ridiculously bad plays in Omaha High Low. Sure. So it's kind of like in the mixed game now, you know, people are in there because maybe they really like, oh, I like Omaha High Low. And that's why they're in the mixed game. Mm-hmm. But then they just struggle so much in the other games that however much money they can be making off of you in their game, they're losing more than that back in the other games. Exactly. That's good to be proficient uh, at, at lots of them. That's for sure. Okay. Interesting. I like that answer. Well, I mean, folks, just to, to sort of get I, an idea of, of Greg's longtime proficiency at mixed games. Um, I'll just, you know, I'll repeat the result here. One of your first recorded hand and mob caches is a win from 2001 in a $120 buy-in stud tournament at Foxwoods, and you won 25K. That's 252 entries, almost 500 rebuys, a prize pool of, of $75,000. So first, it's sort of like a two-parter. How, I mean, how, how is it, how is mixed game play different or at all now versus then? And secondly, how do we get that many people to enter, you know, <laughs> mixed games nowadays? Because it doesn't seem like they, they have that same, you know, type of popularity. Well, one difference in that specific event, when I moved to Connecticut in 98, if you went to Foxwoods, you know, they had a big, one of the biggest poker rooms in the world at that yeah. time, because mm-hmm. they would have, you know, 40, 50 tables running, sure. you know, at peak times. But if you went there and there were 40 games, cash games going, at least 35 would be stud. Wow. I mean, wow. it would be like maybe one Omaha high-low game. And, and, you know, two, three, four Hold'em games and the rest would be stud high. Mm. So for, you know, you, if Foxwoods at that time, you expected the stud tournament to have the biggest field. Gotcha. Okay. Not the Hold'em, not the No Limit Hold'em. The stud was the most popular game. Mm -hmm. So that's the big difference. Even now you go to Foxwoods, you still get stud games every day, but the majority of the cash games will be Hold'em. Right. So it's switched around now with the poker boom. But mm-hmm. back then, stud was the king in that in that room. And the same when Mohegan Sun was open. Mm-hmm. And it was very popular down in Atlantic City. Yep. Um, I don't know about the New Hampshire rooms because I've never been up there. But they, I'm pretty sure they already had New Hampshire poker rooms at that time. Stud may have been the more popular form Interesting. Of, of game up, up there as well. I'm not sure. So, you know, but if you went somewhere else, it was going to be limit hold'em. So Mm -hmm. when I played in California, the tournaments were mostly limit hold'em. 
Mm-hmm. Like a, a main event. If you had a tournament series, your main event was going to be No Limit Hold'em because you were kind of emulating the World Series. Right. And you would have some No Limit Hold'em events in your schedule, but mm-hmm. the bulk of the schedule would be Limit Hold'em. And and it's a very different, you know, to be honest, even though I love all those other games, yeah, and I think they're better as cash games yeah. than No Limit Hold'em, for tournament play, Limit Games kind of suck. <laughs> okay, I hear that. I, I've, I've, I've certainly played both, you know, tournament and cash, and I, it's hard to disagree with you there. I mean, again, I love games like Triple Draw and stuff, but the problem is any limit tournament. Like, if you look at the first several 50K player championships, before they even called it that, yep. they would be playing horse. Yep. And and you going from like 140 people to a winner over five days. Yeah. That's obviously a really good structure. Yet by the time you would start to get close to the money, like they're gonna, oh, 140 people will pay 16. By the time you were down to 30, the average stack was definitely only 15 to 20 big blinds. Uh-huh. Right. So it's just like, and if you gave us a better structure. It would have, it's, we still would have had under 20 blinds <laughs> when we got close to the money. Right. It would have just taken like another day to get there. Right. So with limit, it doesn't, I mean, the better structure helps, but you're still going to be in a spot where if you just like, oh, I lost two ordinary hands. It's hard to even call them bad beats or cold decks, you know, or anything. It's just like, oh, you raise my blind in Omaha high low. I have ace three, four, six with a suited ace. Yep. You know, I'm obviously not folding. Yep. And and then the flop comes, you know, four, seven, nine. And and I'm oh, I got the ace three low draw. I got the pair. Maybe I have a flush draw. I'm not going know, anywhere. I'm right. not, you know, I'm not going anywhere. Yep. And you know, so it's kind of like, oh, but as it turns out, I don't make my flush. You know, I make one pair or two pair, but then you turn over ace deuce and, and a better high, and yep. it's just like the only question is, how many bets am I going to lose? Exactly. There is no, I'm going to get away from this hand. I have to say, hearing this from you makes me feel better because I've played in numerous mixed game tournaments. And, you know, some, you know sometimes you just get really close to the money, not really making any mistakes. And then all of a sudden you're out of the tournament. And for exactly the types of reasons you described, you know, you're just stack size. It can't be gigantic it just is a regular average stack you lose a couple hands like that and all of a sudden you don't get to make the money it's so great to sort of be um uh oh, what's the word um not acknowledged validated uh validated yeah. exactly like so be, that's legitimate to not cash in a situation like that i mean like the closest i came to a second bracelet was a stud high low tournament Mm-hmm. And this was a year where they actually had an exceptionally bad structure for the limit games. Um, that was a the year they did the double stack. There was one year okay. at the World Series where we did double stacks. So you got two tournament chips for every dollar of the buy-in. And this was a $2,000 buy-in, I believe, stud high-low. And we started off playing like 2040 limit in level one. Like I won practically, I mean, I won like half the hands. I won every hand I played. And my 4,000 chip stack was like, you know, under still under 6,000. Wow. You know, just crushing the table. So it was kind of an irrelevant level one. <laughs> and by the time we got to the final, like we were four-handed at the final table. 
I had 15 blinds or 15 small bets. Wow. And I had half the chips. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and it was just like, like I get a guy all in and I have like two pair to his one pair uh-huh. and, you know, and two more cards to come and he like catches boom, boom and, and yeah. wins. And then the same thing happened a hand or two later to someone else. It's like, Oh, I've got Kings up on fifth and you have a pair of sevens. And instead of making your low draw, you caught another seven. Yep. And <laughs> then it's like, well, and then all of a sudden I'm on fumes and then I, you know, get it in my last couple of bets in good and lose that one. And it's just like, well, shit, like I just had this thing crushed. I had half the chips, you know, I basically had 50% of a bracelet in my hand and then right. just Gosh. a couple of ordinary beats. And, and it wasn't like my opponents were like, oh my God, you're an idiot for not folding. It's like, no, it's like <laughs> they're starting off with five bets and, right. you know, they're that, getting a perfectly defensible hand. Maybe that's just the way the hand plays out. Exactly. Um, yeah, like I'm starting with split kings and you're defending with your, you, know, you brought it in with a three and you have a six, seven underneath. And yeah, you, and now you paired your seven and to, to folks know, out there, you, in didn't, the com- you didn't know I made kings up. So I, I got to say to folks out there in the community who don't yet know the joys of mixed games is obviously a lot of complexity and nuance, but it's nice to to change it up just from Hold'em. And, you know, I, I can only hope that from hearing our discussion about, uh, you know, the minutia of mixed game tournaments, mixed game cash game play, it just whets your appetite a little bit to, to try and get involved a little bit. Um, one specific mixed game result you had, Greg, really stood out to me. Um, it was the next immediate result you had after winning the main event for $5 million, it was a $10,000 buy-in. The next result in which you cashed, it was second place in a $50 deuce to seven triple draw event for $320 at Barge. So that's quite the yeah. difference from, from you know center stage on ESPN at the World Series. So talk to us a little bit about that. And, and also for those who don't know what Barge is, uh, are you an annual uh, attendee there? Well, I haven't been okay. for a long time. Okay. I've been there a couple of times. I was there that time after winning. I was been there a couple of times since then. But okay. the, the issue is it's kind of hard to justify traveling for fun, you know, away from your family. Mm when you're already spending half the year on the road. Right. And so, you know, the, the barge in 04 worked out cause there was something else. I don't remember at all what going on in Vegas that was like, Oh, okay. Like I have to be there for this. And then barges right after I'll just extend my stay a few days. Okay. But, you know, barge is a group of people that have been getting together for this annual thing for, I think close to 30 years yeah, or something. Yeah. And uh, 25 years at least. And so it's just a group of friends and you have fun and it's, you know, like this $50 tournaments, $100 tournaments. And so the main event of Barge is always patterned after the World Series. It's like, well, we cut the time down, you know, the length of the levels down. So it's a one day event, but they usually follow the same structure as the main event. But the other tournaments are sometimes, you know, like one tournament, you know, was like history of poker and it was like five card stud and five card draw and something else. Awesome. And, uh, you know, and then they've invented strange games like Chawaha <laughs> and stuff like this. Yeah. Um, 
you know, uh, like they'll do a PLO variant where um, called Bing Laha. Yeah, sure. Well, you roll the and, dice and you roll the dice. So you like you, you play pre-flop and you play the flop. And before the dealer puts out the turn, you roll the dice. And if it's a one, two or three, you're playing high, low split. Right. If it's four, five, six, you're playing high only. Right. <laughs> um, you know, but that's also the, I mentioned earlier, Action Res, like last barge in 2019, uh-huh. they were trying to come up with a way, like, how can we change Raz so that being the bring-in isn't an automatic penalty? Right. Okay. Because for people who don't know, like, when you play any stud game, usually there's an ante, and then the dealer gives everyone two down, one up, and depending upon which form of stud, one of the players has to do the bring-in. Right. And it's generally, it's the worst card showing. Right. So if you are playing stud high, whoever has the you know lowest card showing has to put this bring-in bet out there. In a game like Raz, whoever has the highest card showing. So it's how do we change this? So that, because if you're the low card in stud high, you might still have a big pair underneath. You yep. might even have like, oh, I have a deuce up, I'm the bring-in, but I might have three of a kind already. It's unlikely but you at least can have it, you know, or you can just, oh, I have two of hearts and I have the ace of hearts and the queen of hearts. You know, yep. there's lots of chances to have a defensible hand. Mm-hmm. In Raz, no. Right. <laughs> a good, uh, a, you know, if you're at a full eight-handed game and, and someone completes, you are usually wrong to not fold when you are the bringing in Raz. You are usually not making the correct strategic decision. Right. If you don't fold. Correct. Right, right, right. Okay. And and so to fix that, they invented action res. And instead okay. of derailing this into a long conversation of that, it's not okay. very complicated. I wrote an article in Card Player. So if you go to the Card Player website and look up all my articles, you'll find one a few episodes or a few issues ago about action res explaining the rules. Awesome. But now action res turns res into a fun game. With a lot of really cool strategy changes, okay. I'll have to. Look and it's that a simple, and it's a very simple change. But then it's like that one little change just modifies strategy throughout. I like. It. I'll have to look that one up and see. Maybe we'll you integrate will integrate like it. it into my home game as well. We'll see if we can you, work with as that. As soon as you read this, you will. <laughs> I promise okay. you. Okay. You will integrate this into your next home game. I promise you. Nice. Well, for those who uh, have gotten enough taste of the mixed games, we'll shift gears a little bit. It's important to shift gears uh, at all forms of poker, including interviews. Um, a little bit. <laughs> Looking for a transition, a smooth segue. Um, yeah. Chris Moneymaker, Mike Mattisau, and Joe Hashem. Those are some guys that you'll forever be linked to. Um, how often do you still keep in touch with them? Well, not as much as I would like, but it's just an issue of, you know, we're all different people, different lifestyles and who sure. live in completely disparate areas, mm-hmm. you know, so Mattisau is still in Vegas and, and we're, you know, I don't dislike him at all. You know, I think we both are very friendly to each other, respect each other, but you know, he's a single guy in Vegas. I'm a married guy in North Carolina, right. like, you know. And, you know, even before he started having any of his health issues, it's like if he was not playing poker, you know, he's probably like going to like go to the clubs or something. And that was just never something I was interested in doing. I didn't really enjoy it. So we just weren't going to end up hanging out okay? Um, because we're different people, but not because I dislike him or, or the other way around. Sure. Um, 
Chris and Joe are more similar to me in the sense that they both are like married with kids and all that. Right. But, you know, Chris lives in, you know, near Memphis and Joe lives in Australia. And, you know, we got along great, had a lot of fun when we would be like on tours for poker stars together. It's kind of like, oh, we're having you guys travel around Europe and make appearances at all these poker rooms all through, you know, 12 different countries and 15 days or something. (laughs) So we're all in the same hotels and on the same airplanes and stuff. And and we get along great and and are great friends. But again, you know, when we're like the guy lives in Australia, it's like, how much are you going to hang out? Right. (laughs) And how it's just like, uh, you know, yeah, I'd love to hang out with Joe and, you know, and, and spend time with his family. And, and I'm sure like if, for whatever reason, if I had taken Cheryl and Sophie and moved to Melbourne, Australia, we'd probably be eating meals with him and his family all the time. Right. <laughs> That's fair. But, because we kind of like just group, group you together because we're seeing you in the pictures and everything. And, and the same thing. If like, if Chris Moneymaker moved to Raleigh, it's like, I'm sure like, yeah, you know, come on over this weekend. We'll, we'll grill some, some steaks or burgers or whatever. Awesome. And the kid and the kids can play and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, yeah, no, like that just, okay. you know, it's not, it's not like he's going to fly over from, from Memphis. To, sure. Of course. You know, grill some steaks and play in the pool. Cool. Well, well how about uh, this fall? They just released uh, the WSOP schedule. 88 bracelets yeah. uh, are on offer. Is there are any particular bracelets that you'll be chasing after? Have you sort of set the penciled in which, which events you're going to play? I have not, but the answer is still easy. It's always the main event. Okay. Like, there's no okay. other bracelet you want more than I mean. If anyone tells you like, oh, I'd rather win the, like the 50K Players Championship because that's only the best players in the world. I'm like, sure, I would love that bracelet, but I'd rather have a main event bracelet again. Uh, really? Still Even pick- though you've got one? You've checked that off the to-do list? Of course. Okay, interesting. Of course. I mean, it's, plus it, it, you win a lot more money. Right. That's true too. That's true too. You know, and, and, and the 50 K is not on TV anymore. Mm -hmm. So all these other good reasons, you know, more money is a, is a pretty big one. Yeah. I like that. That's true. Um, Well, there you go. And also if you're a double main event winner, maybe they'll copy you two rooms next time at the uh, Ameristar. (laughs) Well, I I don't need two, but right. (laughs) Count me, count me the room and then a buy-in. There you go. Um, I know in years past, you've sold packages uh, for playing multiple yeah. WSOP events. Um, does it make you feel, does it make you, pl- do, sorry, do you feel that it makes you play better when it's not just your money at stake, but also other people have invested in you? I don't feel that way, but I, I know there's a lot of people that do. Mm-hmm. I've actually heard both sides. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of players who are like, if it's someone else's money, now I feel, you know, morally obligated to always do my best and to right. make smart decisions and not like buy in, you know, do a late reg and just say, oh, I'm all in dark firsthand. You know, I'm only getting 12 blinds here. So how bad can it be? Right. Let's gamble it up. Um, you know, so some people would say they won't do that stuff when it's your money instead mm-hmm. of theirs. But then other players have said when it's someone else's money, I don't doesn't bother me as much so they're Mm. actually more likely to do the crazy gambling when it's someone else's money interesting for me it doesn't matter i mean if if you invited me to do like a charity event and there were prizes donated for the winners and it's like you know oh greg but you know like we want the donors to win prizes so like even if you win the tournament 
the person in second will get first prize and so on. Okay. So in other words, I can't win anything. Right. And I've done that. I've been in charity events like that. But even there where I, where I literally cannot win, I just can't like play bad on purpose. <laughs> so if you see me make a play that's clearly bad, then it really is my own fault. It wasn't me just saying, yeah, screw it. I don't care. Uh-huh. Um, that means I honestly, for some reason, thought that was a good play. Okay. Um, and so I certainly can make mistakes. Uh-huh. But I cannot knowingly make a mistake. I can't know this is like, oh, this is a stupid time to get it all in and okay. do it anyway. That's fair. That's so, fair. you know, I might have a really horrible read on you. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, I can only beat a bluff, but I'm uh-huh. sure he's bluffing. And right. then turn out like, oh, heck, he has quads, you know. like So I've I've been completely off on reads and made big mistakes, but they've all been honest mistakes, not okay. ones that I knew I was making. Okay. Um, besides, obviously, the, the year you won, uh, you know, 2004, was there another year since then that you particularly enjoyed either playing or, you know, perhaps as a fan of watching that year's main event or something like that? Well, I, you know, liked most of the 05 main event the year yeah. after. Yeah. I mean, all but <laughs> the last, you know, day. Yeah. All but the last day and a half. And, okay. You know, that one, to be honest, that hand that crippled me mm. where uh, Aaron Canner made a flush, he made the runner runner flush to, to beat my Kings. I can estimate that that pot cost me maybe as much as $40 million in equity. Wow. Wow. Because if I win that pot, I have like 10% of all the chips. Mm-hmm. And I would have given myself 15% to win it again mm-hmm. at that point. And it's not just like, oh, 15% of the first prize. Right. But it's also like, oh, wait, it's 04, it's 05, height of the poker boom. If I win it back and back, back to back, then I'm going to poker stars and like, Let's renegotiate my deal. Right. <laughs> Give me some ownership. Yeah, you're in I the conversation some, with I, Johnny Chan, I, with uh, Steve I want a few. I want to, yeah. I mean, if you want me to keep representing you, I need to have a few points in the company. Uh-huh. And then, you know, maybe I own one or two or 3%, and uh-huh. then they sell for $5 billion down the road. <laughs> um, so, like, you know, 15% of what could have been yeah, yeah. works out to maybe as high as 40 million. Man, um, one hand. So, <laughs> so on, the, on the plus side, you cannot put a bad beat on me that's even close. <laughs> so it's really hard for me to like take a bad beat and get upset anymore. Uh, uh, and I'm like, look at it, man, <laughs> I've taken it a hundred times worse than this. So, you know. I like that looking on the bright side. That, that, that's important. Um, that well, is, that's the silver lining. Yeah. Well, obviously, poker's gotten so much tougher uh, over the last 17 years. So many new players have entered the game. So many people have been studying. What have, you know, but you've maintained consistent success. You know, what, what is it that you believe that you've done over the years to keep your, your game sharp and, and remain a, a consistent winner? It, it, there's no like magic answer to that. It's just continuing to work on your game. You know, okay. you need to, uh, you know, still try to improve. You need to like seek out these new advances and strategy and, and 
look into them, see if they make sense. And if they do, you try to incorporate them into your game and improve your play. Okay. So whether it's starting hand selection or, you know, board textures that are good to bluff at or, or good to see bet at, you know, and, and, and all these other little things that, that we've figured out and gotten better at. Um, you know, I've published my first book. And I'm it was kind of like, yeah. <laughs> to, to an extent, it's it's kind of like I do these full day seminars. Yeah. And the morning session is lecture. The afternoon section is live hand labs. And so the my my current book that you can buy now is essentially it's the morning session. Okay. I mean, it's more because I'm the book covers way, way more than I could cover in any one morning. But every morning session I do isn't identical. So like take everything I've ever talked about in the morning and then clean it up and make it pretty and put it in a book. Right. right. But the afternoon session, I decided my next book, I'll kind of like do the afternoon session for that. We're doing live hands. So like you and, and like eight or nine other students are sitting at the table and I'm dealing and you play against each other. And then I critique your play at the end of the hand. Mm -hmm. So I went and dug up every like historical hand I could that had, the details, you know, I could find, which fortunately I, I'm on share my pair. So uh -huh. I was able to like pull every hand I'd ever posted on share my pair wow. and like, Oh, is this one worth putting in the book? Mm -hmm. But I also went back to like the 04 DVD set. Wow. And so I'm like, oh, I'm watching all of that. And like, here's a hand I played. Da -da. So I'm pulling hands to put in the book and boy, did I play bad back then? Mm -hmm. I just didn't know it. I mean, to be honest, relative to the standards of the day, I was a better player in 04 than I am now. That's interesting. Wow. But but me in 04 doesn't play very well compared to me in 2021. Right. Huh. Interesting. You know, there's lots of, I made lots of mistakes, you know, bet sizing mistakes mm -hmm. and, or things that at least from today's perspective, I would say this was not optimally played. Right. Well, you said, and yeah. uh, so I'm just saying like it's it's changed a lot. But so now this new book, when I'm done with it, it's going to be me critiquing all these hands, and I'll be critiquing me and like if you were one of the people in in the hand, then I might be critiquing your decisions and like this is what I think Robbie did well or didn't do so well mm -hmm. in this pot. And yeah, I, I basically get to like rip myself, you know, a new one <laughs> over and over again because I'm just like, oh, you know. You know, okay. man, it's like at least from the modern perspective, this wasn't done well. Okay. Like, like, why am I, why am I c betting so big? Like, if he's gonna yeah. fold for sixty thousand, he'd have folded for thirty thousand sure. on that flop. You know, okay. and well, but before and, I ask you the question about uh, about your book, um, I did want to ask though. So back in the day, you mentioned you referenced earlier, like, well, you know, you heard about pot odds. What what's that? And then you go to an old bookstore, and you know, you happen to find. Uh, a great poker book. I imagine that's not your study method now. Is there something specific that you do to to train and improve? No, it really is a lot of that. I mean, it's not so much buying books, but okay. it's doing things like like online chat sites. Okay. You know, okay. and talking about hands. Or, you know, now that I do a lot of training myself, it's you know, sometimes the student, you know, you're explaining something and, and you ask me a question, well, what about this? Mm -hmm. I'm like, hmm, that's a good point. Let me look uh -huh. into that further, you know, kind of like I can now, like the seminar's over and I'm back in my hotel room and it's right. kind of like, yeah, he brought up something and then maybe I'm doing some math or 
you know, some simulations or whatever and trying nice. to figure out like, like, does that make sense? And since I'm traveling around all the time, I do get to observe and talk to other good poker players. And so I will discuss strategy with people okay. you know, away from the table, of course, but you know, again, like you and I are at the same tournament on dinner break and I might be like, Hey, you know, like, what do you think of this hand? You know, and I might describe it, you know, A versus B and not tell you which one's me. Right. So you're definitely <laughs> going to give me a more honest feedback, sure. mm -hmm. you know, kind of like A did player A did this and player B did that and did it done. It turned out these were their cards. And like, what do you think? Right. Okay. And, uh, and then I can, you know, weigh it accordingly. Um, try to improve. I mean, there's tons of great training materials. It's a question of what works best for you. Certainly, exactly. if there is a good book, that is a great way for me to learn. I'm visual. I need to see it. You know, an audiobook version, forget it. It will not stick <laughs> with me. Okay. I can't I can't do it that way. Right. Um, for some people though, that is the better way. And they want the audiobook version. Mm -hmm. okay. um, some people it's got to be like a private lesson if it's not one-on-one -on -one private lesson it just doesn't seem like they don't it doesn't work for them to try to do it themselves no matter what form it is okay. um it, okay. it just so it depends upon you and so for everyone you know out there like all your cards jet members you know if, if reading a book doesn't work fine but then you got to find out what does is it is it the audiobook? Is it the training videos? Is it, you know, coming to a live seminar with someone like me? Is it do you need to book private lessons? I mean, especially now with Zoom everywhere, I, I do that too. Mm -hmm. You know, I have students we you know, they'll send me like a video. They'll play online, send me a video of it, you know, a screen capture video, and then I'll like kind of fast forward through it, but look for spots. And and that's always been a great tool because Frequently, if they're just asking questions, sure, I can be of help. But in many cases, there's some, you know, relatively serious even issue, something they're doing wrong over and over again, but they don't know what's wrong. They think it's right. So they're not asking me, can you help me with like my bet sizing or whatever? Because they think their bet sizing is good. But I go through this video of them playing some online poker and I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, you are regularly like just betting pot, betting pot, betting pot. And like if it's a cash game, maybe that's fine. But if mm -hmm. it's a tournament, then you probably want to, you know, change that, size it down. Sure. Okay. Well, let's let's uh, focus a little bit on that book. Let's give it, you know, let's give it a name. It's Fossil Man's Winning Tournament Strategies. It's published by D&B Poker. Uh, you kind of already answered the, the second part of my question, so I'll just ask you the first part. Um, why did you wait until 2019 to write a book? What was the, the impetus of, like, I think it's time? Because uh, I'm an idiot. What? <laughs> um. I mean, my book was not like the number one poker book of 2019 or 2020. Mm -hmm. If it had been, if it had been the overwhelming number one poker book in 2019, 2020, 20, or 2020 and this year, we wouldn't have sold 10% of what I would have sold if it was like the number 50 book back in 05. Right. You know, so it's basically because I'm an idiot. Um, okay. I just never... You know, like I had immediately started thinking about writing a book. Uh -huh. uh, you know, Mason Malmuth approached me about writing a book because I'd already been active on their forums for a long time. 
And then I really liked that idea. And he said, oh, we can just have someone else write it and you can just edit it or whatever, you know, as much or you can have basically as much or as little input as you want. It'll be your name. And then with so-and-so. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you don't have to do anything. I'm like, no, no, no. I want it to be my book. Yeah. And then I just never really did it. Mm. Okay. And then finally, I was just like, okay, look at, I, I, I you know, it only took me 15 years to finally like kick myself in the ass and really get it done. <laughs> Okay. Well, it's still better late than never. And, and I have to apologize. I admit I have not read the book yet, but I'm wondering, you know, based on our mixed game discussion that we had a little bit earlier, would we find a section in your book about mixed games or are the strategies that you discuss and the tips sort of applicable to all sorts of tournaments? Does it really matter what variant is being played? I mean, some of the stuff would apply just as well for any game, okay. limit, pot limit, no limit. There is a, a, a section that's just about, you know, other, you know, like limit poker, you know, and pot limit and and how these are different. Because obviously, like when I'm discussing the chapter on stack size strategy, that has a lot to do with like, oh, at what point are you shoving in? You know, it's like, oh, you only have 10 or 12 big blinds, right. then your only decision is fold or go all in realistically. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we're playing pot limit even. You can't do that. It's like, oh, fold, fold, it's on me. And like, oh, ace, jack, I want to, that's a good enough hand. Let's get, it was like, oh, but I can only make it three and a half uh-huh. big blinds. Right. I can't, I can't put in all 10. Right. Um, so the stack size strategy really only applies to no limit. Um, other things, you know, certainly could apply to both. But I do have a section that kind of like, hey, here's some of your main changes you got to start making when it's pot limit or limit. Okay. You know, and those, I mean, obviously those are addressed separately. Um, but And that's also a reason that, like we said, the limit tournaments, um, everyone gets short stacked by the time you're in the money. Because even if this is a hand and no limit, you know, it's like, oh, ace king, I would happily get it all in pre-flop here when I have 10 blinds. Mm-hmm. But it's like, oh, now it's limit and all I can do is raise and three people call and it comes queen nine seven and now all well shit you know yeah <laughs> so now instead of going all in you were like i lost two blinds i have mm-hmm. eight and then you know same thing happens again now you have six and yeah definitely you different. Know, so you you yeah so now all of a sudden you're like well shit you know like <laughs> like I'm, I'm too short to like scare people but it's too many chips to just like raise under the gun with a sure. crap hand and you know, that's, I find the, the limit tournaments to be much more frustrating because of those reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, that is fair. I mean, it takes off a lot but, of patience and yeah. And, and, and there, there's a lot more variance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, when, when most of the tournaments everywhere were to limit hold them, the, the weaker players had a much better chance of winning. Mm. Maybe that's what appeals so much to me about them uh, as, as a weaker player. <laughs> that's that's uh, between you and yourself. I don't that's know it. your game. That's so it. I wouldn't say that. But it, it's certainly, I mean, I'm only talking about tournaments. In, in, in cash games, it's also slightly true. I mean, like, you know, if, if, if your home game was all limit and you were the worst player, you'd be more likely to have a winning night. Mm-hmm. That's true. You might still you might still lose just as much in the long run if it was a limit game that was playing at a similar size to a no limit game. Mm-hmm. So if it, if it's you know one two blinds no limit maybe it's you know five ten limit right or something like that where it's you know 
it's a bigger game in theory, but it doesn't have the no limit aspect. So right. that might have comparable, you know, like the best player might win it about the same rate in terms of dollars per hour. But in the limit game, you might still lose the same amount per hour, but you'd have more variance and you'd have more winning nights. You'd right. also have more big losing nights. Of course. <laughs> Naturally. As well. And, and the same, though, for the best player in the game. They would have fewer winning nights in the limit version. Right. They would still have a winning night, you know, well over half the time and all of that. But they would have, again, if the guy's making 20 an hour, he's still going to have more variance, you know, in that, in those results, even sure. if it all still averaged out to the same. Mm -hmm. Well, again, the, the name of the book is Fossil Man's Winning Tournament Strategies by DNB Poker. Um, Greg, I got two more questions of my own before we go on to the uh, forum and community member Great. questions of, uh, of the show. Um, kind of a, some fun stuff I like to end off uh, my questions on. Maybe a little bit, a little known fact out of you, thanks to our crack research team. My buddy Mike found these uh, couple little facts here. Um, back in the day, you were an aspiring stand-up comedian. So tell us a bit, little bit. <laughs> tell us a little bit about that. And also, are you friendly with any of the poker playing comics like Louis Anderson or Norm Macdonald, Jason Alexander, Brad Garrett, any of those folks? Sure. Well, I was at University of Minnesota when I went to graduate school and then to law school. And it just turns out in hindsight, that was one of the best times and best places in the world if you wanted to break into stand-up comedy. Oh. There's a, you know, that was kind of a golden era for stand-up comedy anyways. But if you were going to go to like the, you know, the meccas like New York and LA, mm -hmm. it was really hard to get time. Like okay. there were clubs that did open mic nights, but if they were going to put 15 or 20 people on the stage, there might be a hundred or more people who wanted to get on. Wow. You know, you come to Minneapolis, St. Paul, and we had an open mic night like five nights a week somewhere, uh -huh. different different places. But, you know, unless you were running late, you could do every single one of them. You could literally be on stage five times a week. And, and so I got into that and had thought like, well, this, you know, was a lot of fun and, uh -huh. you know, kind of did it the first time just for the heck of it. And it was like, oh, you know, that worked out pretty well. Like I actually <laughs> got a lot of laughs and no one like was giving me shit. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and the other nice thing is that I was always developing new material. Mm -hmm. There were some people who might do well, but the guy would do the same five minute bit. Mm -hmm. You know, you'd see him doing it three times a week at different places. And then it's, uh, you know, two months later and it's the same five minutes mm -hmm. material. I was always trying to change it up. And, but what I finally decided was like, I just wasn't good enough. Um, you know, just like, Hey, you know what? I could probably make a living at this, but probably not much more. Okay. You know, like I could go around and do the comedy circuit and, you know, make some money, but probably just enough to pay expenses and, uh -huh. you know, stay alive and not, not be homeless or whatever. But, you know, cause if you had 15 people on stage, if you were going to be the future, you know, Robin Williams and Eddie Murphy and, and whoever else, you know, the next Louis Anderson, you should be like, obviously the best yeah. out of those 15 or so people. Right. 
And, and I always felt like I was second or third best. And so it's like, oh, I'm doing good. You know, I'm not screwing up. I'm doing a decent job. People are laughing, but I'm not the one who at the end of the night, they're like telling their friends about at work the next day, man, this guy was so, you know, like, I don't think I was that guy. And so therefore I just like realized like, I am not gonna, it's unlikely I'm going to be the next, you know, Eddie Murphy or whatever. And so I just, you know, and and to to even find out, I was going to have to like quit grad school where, Uh you know, like, oh, they're basically, you know, I'm in the sciences. They pay you to go to school when you're in the sciences. And uh, so I gave it up. But uh, it's not like being second or third best in the the multiple poker variants. It's not going to see the same type of success. Yeah. Yeah. No, it isn't. Like if I'm the second or third best out of the eight players in the mix game at every game, then I'm going to probably be the biggest winner in that game. Right. Right. But yeah, no, that won't cut it here. Like, mm-hmm. cause you got to, you know, I mean, basically I, when I quit, it was the first time I got offered a paying job. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> such such yeah. as uh, the variants of uh, the vagaries of life. Well, yeah. it, it was going to be like go on the road for a month, get paid like 250 bucks and expenses. Like, like this guy ran all the comedy clubs in the upper Midwest. Uh-huh. Essentially, he either he either owned them, managed them, or at least booked them. Okay. And so he would assemble a group, and maybe if you were the experienced guy, you were in charge, and you'd be driving the rest of us around, be like five of us or whatever in a van or something, and driving from one little town to another. And you had the money to like pay for the gas, the food, the hotel rooms, and stuff, and so I didn't have to pay for any of those things, but at right. the end of the month, I'm getting paid 250 bucks for all yeah. of this. And it's just like, I can't even keep my apartment yeah. for 250 bucks, <laughs> which means I'd have to like, you know, like get out of my lease and put all my stuff in storage and, you know, quit grad school, you know, and, and then what at the end of the month? Right. Yeah, it's like since again, you're the experienced guy who this owner trusts. You're now basically telling him out of the rest of us, like, oh, who did good and deserved like more? Mm-hmm. Like, who's good enough to maybe be the first of three openers when someone headlines mm-hmm. or any of these other things? And so I was just like, yeah, it's I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to chase that. And and how about those headliners that uh, that we mentioned? You managed to make uh, any friends with the, the poker playing uh, comedians over the years? Yeah. Yeah, I've met a bunch of them. I mean, you can find like me playing with Louis on the uh, main event feature uh-huh. table. It was uh-huh. like day two several years ago. And since he and I happened to be seated next to each other, we were the feature table. And I had met him previously because he was also getting sponsored uh-huh. um, by the same site. And I've, you know, met Norm MacDonald and hung out with him a little and Louis Anderson and, and, uh, you know, many of the other poker playing celebrities out there, you know, the Matt Damons and, and just on and on and on, nice. you know, there's, there's a bunch. I mean, it's not like, I, again, like I'm not close with any of them. Okay. I, I might be, but none of them live here in Raleigh. Right. <laughs> um, maybe I'd be, maybe I'd be hanging out with them on That's a regular fair. basis or something, you know, but, but certainly like if I'm in Vegas and have time, I can call up Louie and he'll, you know, get me tickets to his show. Awesome. Well, that's fun. <laughs> um, stuff like that. And I've contacted those people. Like I got a bunch of them to get involved in like a chair online charity event. Beautiful support, su- support for the Georgia Senate runoff race. Mm-hmm. 
that nice. we had and some stuff like that. Cool. Very good. So, and they're all nice people. Yeah. But something I found is that most of these celebrities are actually really, really nice. Mm-hmm. They're not the divas like they get portrayed. I'm sure some are, <laughs> but most of them are real, real nice. And, you know, so, but again, they're busy or whatever. Sure. Well, that's what we're all about here at, uh, at Cards Chat. Real nice people, and clearly you've surrounded yourself with uh, similarly uh, nice folks. Uh, my last question. I it's, hope. Uh, yeah. <laughs> my last question. It's it's time to play confirm or deny the crazy story we found on your Wikipedia page. So, Greg, on your karate, karate chop denied. Ah, that's the one. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I'll ask the question in full. Um, uh, in according to the Wikipedia page, on December 2004, two men tried to rob you at gunpoint at the Bellagio, but you held them off with a karate chop. So it's not true. The karate chop is not true. The rest of it is. Oh, okay, okay. So I mean, you can go find like old, like actual like newspaper stuff, like you mm-hmm. know, Associated Press and yep. you know sources like that. I mean, two guys did try to rob me just outside the door to my hotel room on the. 20th floor of the Bellagio mm-hmm. and uh and I did manage to get them to run off and one of them did pull out a gun hmm. in the middle of all this Man. but it wasn't me being some kind of like you know you know Walker Texas Ranger and it certainly wasn't karate chops it was just it it was this it was a situation where I was doing what I thought was most likely to result in me not dying Okay. So if it had just been like, walk up to me, pull a gun and say, give us your money. I'm probably giving them the money because the implication is I'm going to hand over the money and you're going to then leave. Right. Here, they'd been trying to push me into my room. Right. And I was big enough and strong enough that that failed. And I pushed us back out and knocked them away from me in the hall. And that's when the one guy pulled out the gun and I'd already been yelling for help. At this point, when I see the gun, I kind of like went, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. And then over the next second, two seconds max, what went through my mind is they're not just like saying, hey, give us your money. They're trying to get me in the room. Right. Presumably they're going to tie me up and rob me. Mm. I've seen their faces. Right. So once they get me tied up, if they decide we have to kill this guy so he can't identify us, then I'm 100% dead. You know, just be like, put duct tape over my mouth and nose. And I'm already all tied to a chair or something like I'm going to die. And if and if I keep fighting out here in the hallway, even if he shoots me, they'll probably run. And most gunshot victims do survive. Right. So it was basically like, which is going to be most likely to get me killed? Let's do the other. Hmm. So I started yelling for help. The bigger of the two guys tried to grab me again. I knocked him down, which was a mistake because then I've knocked him down and he's in front of me to my right and the other guys to the left. And as soon as I knock him down, I'm looking over here thinking, oh, that was stupid. Now I'm going to get shot. I should have grabbed onto this guy Uh so that his partner doesn't want to shoot. Right. But the end of the hallway is behind them. Uh And as I look over, it's like, he's not there and he's not in the back. And then I look, you know, and he's running down the hallway. He'd given up. Wow. I mean, then the other guy got up and ran away and they got caught in, in uh, San Diego, like a month or so later. I I guess like staring down an opponent when you're not sure whether to call a raise or you don't want him to call you kind of like 
no biggie after something like that. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, it's it's you know it's a similar thing though. Like which decision is best? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's yeah. I, exactly. You know, and and it's you know instead of tournament life, it's real life, and mm-hmm. and, and it's real life and money instead of tournament life and money. But uh, and okay. I had you know back then when it was more of an in the news moment. You know, I'd have lots of people, you know, approach me about it. And I had more than one person who was like, you know, oh, I'm a security expert. Like rich people hire me to help protect them from kidnappings and stuff. And, you know, or police, you know, and they all were like, yeah, you know, they like in their world. The saying is you are more likely to get killed at the second crime scene. Hmm. So you you like in the movies when someone like a van pulls up and they point a gun and they say, get in. They're like. I teach my clients, you don't get in, right? You fight, you struggle, you scream, you run, you do anything to not get in that van because, you know, once you're in the van and they're going to where they want to take you now, you'll probably end up dead here. It's like, they don't want to just shoot you because then they'll be shooting you and driving away and they don't get anything. Hmm. They don't kidnap you. They don't get a ransom. They, you know, if their plan is just to kill you, then yeah, maybe they shoot you, but, Again, if they shoot you and drive away, an ambulance might come in time to save your life. If, right. if you get in the van and now they're taking you to the woods where they're going to like carefully shoot you in the head a few mm-hmm. times before mm-hmm. before burying the body. So, wow. and if they're kidnapping you, they don't want to kill you, at least not at first. Right. Well, obviously, the type of experience we don't want anyone to have, and no. uh, you know, of course, only only wishing you well. Of course um, not. Yeah. Well, in but this, it's, you know. Yeah. It happens, uh, unfortunately, because yeah, there's course. bad people in the world, and you know. But the the press, the plus side again, the silver lining on this incident was like, you know, when I look back on it, it's like, well, I didn't, you know, they didn't steal my money, I didn't get hurt, right? And I learned that, like, even in this super high stress situation, I was still thinking calmly, like, right. what's my best move? What what's the correct play, mm-hmm. so to speak? Right. And and I was like, hmm. Well, you know, I've never been in the military or anything, so I was like. It is kind of nice to know that I can stay calm and for sure do my best. For sure. But I hope I, I hope I never need to again. Right. <laughs> yes. Amen. Well, in this uh, segment of the show, we turn to you guys. We're watching and listening. It's our Cards Chat community to see what questions you wanted to ask our guests. We have a dedicated thread on the Cards Chat forums for this. So as we announce who our future guests will be. Please be sure to send in your questions. Our first question comes from Acid Burn FX. Always ask some very creative ones. Um, Greg, what is the most complex thing that you know how to do, and can you explain it to us? Hmm. I told you they're creative. These questions. To be honest, it's probably the same basic things we all do. Okay. Um, like, you know, when you're the baby newborn baby and you're learning to do things like just you know, all your eye hand coordination and you're like oh i want this finger to rub this eyebrow that's a, an insanely hard thing to do and babies are massively impressive hmm. in our natural ability to learn all these things you know and that's why they're just kind of googling around and yeah you know and but then, you know, they learn how to do all these super fine movements and mm-hmm. motions. And mm-hmm. I don't know how to explain it. And it's obviously something that almost all of us are able to do. We did it. Mm-hmm. But that is actually probably more complex than like playing poker or, hmm. you know, anything else 
that I've done like as an adult. Wow. That's a very scientific and interesting answer. I didn't know you'd take it there. Okay, cool. Interesting. Um, Freddie DR87, thank you very much for these questions. Um, which was harder, the biochemical master or the law school? Probably the law school in the sense that, you know, as, as a student, because like I hate like essay tests. Okay. Because they're subjective. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm doing a test in a class, you know, in chemistry and, and biology and math, mm -hmm. like there's a right answer. Now, it could be that the science will advance and a few years later, we'll find out that that right answer isn't really right. Mm -hmm. But at least at the time, we think this is the right answer. You know, so if okay. the professor wants you to do a math problem, if they want you to explain how a chemical reaction works or whatever, it's like, at least as of now, this is how we all feel that it, you know, this is the correct answer. And it's, okay. and the stuff you're studying at that level is pretty much agreed upon. Mm -hmm. You know, but in law school, it is much more subjective and it's all like essays. Right. And, okay. and I just hated, I hated that kind of grading. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> anytime it's subjective. Feel like, like today. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, um, people have done re research on that and there's a huge disparity in how like the exact same essay answer would get graded by hmm. two people. Even, even like you could grade it and then we're having you grade 200 more. Yeah. We give you the same one again. And at that point, you don't remember that this is, I've seen this exact one before. Right. And you'll grade it quite differently. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. And that, and that, piss, that pisses me off because I want, I want all A's. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, here, here's uh, also another study related. It's follow-up from Freddie Freddy DR87. Um, how, if at all, do you feel that you're majoring in chemistry and like, I'll just add in also your law training uh, help you to be a better poker player? Generally, they didn't. Okay. Um, I don't think those degrees necessarily helped. But what I will say that I learned, I mean, I didn't really get into poker seriously until I was a working lawyer. Mm -hmm. But but once I got past a certain level in poker, I can pretty confidently say that playing poker made me better at patent law and it made me better at almost everything. Oh. because the one big lesson I think you can get from poker once you understand the game well enough is that you have to kind of ignore the results. You know, it's like, was this a smart decision? Yes or no. The fact that you then won or lost the pot is not really directly connected to how smart the decision was. Right. I mean, if you go all in and I call with two aces and you beat me, that doesn't obviously mean, I mean, it's pre-flop. Obviously, I wasn't supposed to fold. But I'm still going to lose some percentage of the time. So that result doesn't mean anything. Um, and so that's, I think, the important part is that learning to completely dissociate the result from the process. So that's like, let's focus on the process. Let's focus on making smart choices. Mm -hmm. and And that applies to everything else, like, uh, you know, if you're single and you're looking, you know, like, oh, it's like, it's, here's two people that might date me. Right. Which one would be better for me? Right. You know, <laughs> kind of a thing. Um, you know, 
you know, realistically, who am I better going out with sure. at this point in time? Sure. Um, you know, in business, I mean, if you're making more sales than me, you're probably a better salesman, but it could also just be that you're happen to run into better clients who are more likely to say yes to this product right now. So that doesn't mean that if you're using a different technique, that your technique is better than mine. It's suggestive that it's a better technique, but it's not mm. proven yet, mm. you know? And so focus on the process and, try to ignore all the short-term results. I like it. I like it. It's great to get some knowledge bombs in there. It's good that the uh, community elicits this from you. Um, Crystals, thank you very much, Crystals, for a few questions here. During your run to the WSOP main event title, at what point did you believe you were on a special run? Uh, Never did. Really? Again, it's it's a scientific answer. Like, if you had asked me at the beginning of day one, are you going to win? My answer would have been like, well, we, I don't know if we knew the number yet of how many entries, but assuming we did and there's a little over 2,500, mm-hmm. I'd have been like, well, I'm, I'm better than average. So maybe it's one in a thousand. Okay. You know, and if you'd asked me again later, it's like, oh, you have, you've doubled your starting stack now. Like, well, maybe it's one in 50 or 60,000. Really? If you'd asked me when Heads Up started and it's like, oh, I have 70% of the chips against David, I might have said, oh, I'm a three to one favorite to win it all. So at no point did you feel any like, I've got this as my day, momentum, fairy yeah. dust from the sky, nothing like that? No, no, I definitely don't feel that way. Because again, I'd already played enough poker by that point hmm. that I had gone from you know, big stack to next guy out. Mm. And I'd gone from short stack to winning the whole thing. And so I knew that none of this is written in stone. Mm -hmm. And so it really was just a like, well, what percentage of the chips do I have? And then if I think I'm above average in skill, then I can size that number up a little. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, but if you have half the chips and your average skill level against the remaining field, it's 50%. Right. Whether that's one opponent or 10 people. I mean, if you have half the chips, you know, with 11 people left, you're not any more likely to win the whole thing than if you have half the chips heads up. It's a very rational and, and grounded unless you have a Unless you have a skill advantage. Right. Right. Okay. You know, if you're better than the remaining opponents on that skill level, then you have more than 50%. Mm-hmm. But it's still, it's all, you know, you start with the chip count. And so at no point did I ever think this is mine, it's destiny. Oh, unbelievable. You know? I like that answer. Very, very grounded, very rational answer. Um, second question from Crystals. You have 41 WSOP caches. Do you think you get enough credit for how successful you've been at the WSOP? Or is that overshadowed by the fact that you won the main event? I would say I probably don't get enough credit in some regards because I don't have a second bracelet. Mm. Like, in other words, it wouldn't have mattered really how much money I'd won or even if I'd had, a you know, 50 final tables instead of just 50 caches. I think people still might say, but you haven't won a second bracelet. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, I've done well. I've certainly made a lot more money than I've spent in buy-ins okay. at the World Series, you know, since winning the main event. Not not counting that five million, just counting right. since then, mm-hmm. I'm sure I'm still ahead quite a bit. You know, at least a few hundred thousand, if not more. But I, in my own opinion, I've underperformed. Um, 
I don't think I've, like, I certainly, if you'd asked me like in 05 before the series started, like, oh, if you're still playing every World Series, you know, for the next 15 years, how many bracelets do you think you'll have? And I would have said at least three or four more. Really? Okay. So I do, I do feel like I've underperformed at the World Series, even though I've been making money. Okay. Well, perhaps uh, you're due for another one uh, this coming fall. I guess we'll we'll see. Um, third question. I, I, I always plan on winning three. There you I go. I always okay. plan on winning three. Every, every year, I'm going to win at least three. And it just, you know, but planning in poker doesn't make much sense. Right. <laughs> it's always good to think uh, optimistically. Um, last question from Crystals. How many pairs of glasses or fossils have you had to give out to others over the years? Estimation, estimated, obviously. Well, I never give out the glasses, okay. um, but I, I, you know, started doing the fossils and I, I'll play something like a hundred or a little over a hundred entries a year. And obviously I'm only going to win one, two, three, four times a year at mm-hmm. most. So, you know, certainly thousand, fifteen hundred fossils. That's like a dinosaur skeleton. That's a lot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, I buy them in bulk. I also like every time I do a live seminar, everyone gets an autographed fossil and I sell them on my website. So the last time I was getting low on fossils, I went to the big rock and mineral shows that are in Tucson every February and I bought 2000 fossils. Wow. Okay. So I still have, I still have several boxes of fossils Uh available now. Well, we've got another fossil question from Shells. Thank you very much, Shells, uh, for putting these questions together. This is our last uh, community member who's contributed questions. Uh, you've been nicknamed the Fossil Man, of course, doing, d- uh, due to your collection of fossils. Um, do you still use the fossil as a card protector? And if so, do you know how old each fossil is that you use? Uh, yes, I do. And yes, I do. Um, I basically, for card protectors, I am almost always using an ammonite fossil. And, and that's because I do have this practice now of if it's a regular tournament, not, like not a satellite, I don't do it for satellites, but any regular tournament, even if it's a small buy-in event, if you knock me out of the tournament, I sign the fossil. So I'd be like, oh, to Robbie Straczynski, congrats, you got me, I sign it. The I'm still date, waiting. The name of the event. I'm just letting you know. You I'm got still- it, you got it. You, I mean, waiting. You got to knock me out. That's up to you. Um, you got to enter the same tournament, yeah. manage to get it to my table, and then manage to knock me out. Okay. Um, but if it's like still the reentry period, I don't give the fossil out because you didn't eliminate me from the tournament. I'm going to mm-hmm. go reenter. Um, and there is a douchebag clause, which doesn't come up very often. Maybe once every other year. <laughs> but if someone's, you know, being a total douchebag. They don't win the fossil. That's fair. I like that clause. Um, who is your poker hero? Shells wants to know. Uh, you know, I don't have a real poker hero, but the people I respect the most are the ones that are just, you know, always trying to be good for the game, or at least in the sense they're trying not to be jerks. You know, they they behave themselves. They don't talk crap to another player unless it's obviously in jest. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're at my table, we might be talking crap to each other, but only, I would only be doing it if I was sure you understood that we were just buddies needling each other, having fun. I wouldn't do it actually trying to insult you. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people who actually try to insult other people, yeah. you know, or who are 
otherwise rude or you know misbehave or whatever at the table and you know so basically the players who are the opposite of that who are just always well behaved who are paying attention and don't slow the game down who don't sit there and break the dealer because how could you give that guy another heart on the river right you know as if the dealer had anything to do with that really um you know so basically i just have a lot of respect for the players that are good for the game and, and their attitude and behavior okay. and that's a lot of people you know there's hundreds thousands of players who fit that category but there's not like this one person is my hero um you know there's and there's plenty of great players who i mm-hmm. will admit are better than me mm-hmm. um but that doesn't mean they're my hero that just means i respect their skill that's fair okay uh two questions before uh, we wrap it up two more from shells um do you have great. any pet peeves Uh, yeah, several. Um, I think the one that maybe bothers me the most is like a player will make a bet on the river and then you'll go all in and they'll sit there and not know what to do where it's a situation that like, how could you not see this as at least a possibility? Right. Like literally like they bet 5,000 chips on the river and then you're all in for 12,000. And they're just like, oh, my God, oh, my God, like, gosh, you know, what? Uh, and and I'm just like, like, you didn't think of this before you bet 5,000 of like, what might I do if Robbie goes all in for 12? And now you're sitting there agonizing in front of us for a minute or three minutes, you know, oh, my God, you know, shit, I didn't expect that. And I'm like, how could you? I mean, if I bet 5,000 and you go all in for 100,000, that's different. Like now I, I'm going to like that person wants to think for a while. I'll give them the time. But when it's like 5,000, you're all in for 12 and now they're tanking. I'm just like, I'm calling the clock as soon as I, the floor will enforce it. Cause that's ridiculous. Like you should have, you should have seen that coming as a possibility. Well, people who are listening may not have heard. That, that's people a pet peeve. Are, yeah. People who are watching saw that I just couldn't stop laughing. I don't know if you heard it on the mic, but um, yeah, it's like enough, something I never even noticed, but like, obviously when it happens, I feel exactly the same way. And it happens a little bit too often for my taste. R- related so, to that though, yeah. it's like you bet 5,000 and then I'm thinking for a minute or two and finally fold. And then the other player in the pot, now they start thinking, right. And it's kind of like, <laughs> kind of like, what were you doing <laughs> while the... <laughs> The second guy was sitting there thinking and thinking. I mean, and they almost will act like I was just waiting my turn. Oh, it's my turn. Now I will start thinking. Like, come on. Like, you should have been already thinking, like, what am I probably going to do if that other guy folds? Yeah. What am I going to do if that guy calls? You know, the lines are about to if go that up. guy raises. Yeah. Yep. You know, like, what might I do? I'm like, but no, they'll sit there, watch this guy tank for several minutes. And then it's like, oh, it's on me. Now yeah. I'll start thinking, hmm, what should I do with Robbie's 5,000 chip bet? Right. I'm like, what were you doing while he was tanking? Come on. Our, our, our final question. You made me laugh plenty, Greg, and we talked about your, your comedy chops, uh, whatever they may be. So our last question from Michelle is very appropriate. What makes you laugh the most? At the poker table, do you think that, or does that mean in general? However, you'd like to answer. That should be taken. I don't know. I mean, 
it, it's 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 a two way answer. I mean, it's like all the insanely stupid shit that everyone does. It makes me laugh, but it also drives me crazy and pisses mm-hmm. me off. So just in general, in life, you know, I mean, I like to say everyone's an idiot, and I'm not. I don't mean everyone else. I mean everyone. I'm including myself in this. Everyone is an idiot. The difference is how often are you an idiot and how big of an idiot? (laughs) So in other words, you and I are both idiots, Robbie. But if one of us is a bigger idiot, it's just that he's an idiot either more often or he's an idiot in a much worse, bigger way than the other. (laughs) You know, it's not it's not like. If you know, if I'm the idiot, it's not that I'm always the idiot and you're always right. Oh my god. You know, it's that I'm an idiot a little more at least a little bit more often than you, or I'm an idiot about things that it's like way more obvious that I'm an idiot and I shouldn't be doing it. And so just every aspect of life is so full of this stuff. Uh-huh. You know, just every little thing we all do, like, oh, you're driving down the street. It's like every other driver is like, all right, I'm like, God, this person's so stupid. Like, why would you do that? you know, kind of Mm -hmm. a thing. And so of course, poker is full of that where I just sitting there like, man, if that was like one of my private students, I would be ripping them apart Uh for that decision. Since they're at my table, I'm probably happy they're doing something that stupid. Sure. And, and I do, again, I, I make mistakes at the poker table. I'm not going to pretend that I, every play I make is the best play possible. Mm -hmm. You know, I try, and I work on it, but I'm still going to make some mistakes or get things wrong. But right, right, yeah, all that stuff makes me laugh, but it also just makes me want to just like <laughs> sometimes just kill kill people. Like, <laughs> you know, I hear you. Well, I would be a horrible Superman uh-huh. if I were Superman. You know, who can survive a nuclear blast? Like nothing can hurt me in this world. You know, I'd be seeing some of this really really stupid stuff, and I'd just be going up to these people and just like putting their head in between my fingers and going pop. <laughs> like, I would be more like, you know, Superman, the black Knight kind of version, you know, like the dark mm-hmm. Superman, like, yeah. Like, Oh, you're an evil dictator who was cruel to all the people in your country. I'm just, I'm not going to fly over there and like arrest you. I'm just going to fly over there and <laughs> clap my hands around your head and tell everyone like, don't be like this guy or I'm going to clap your head too. You know? Well, <laughs> on that note, I want to thank our, all of our fellow idiots who <laughs> sent in questions for Greg Kramer. Um, and of course, a friendly reminder to all of you out there in the Cards Chat community, we'd love to see you submit your questions for our future podcast guests in the dedicated thread on the forums. Please be sure, guys, to give us a good review on iTunes and spread the word via your social media channels. If you'd like the show, uh, Greg, by the time this airs and and about a week uh, from when we're recording, it'll be just a couple days before your birthday on June 25th. So an early happy birthday to you Uh, before we let you go. Thanks. Yeah. Before we let you go, anything else you'd like to tell uh, our audience? Well, just I want to thank you, Robbie, for the chance to be on your show. And and it was fun chatting with you. And uh, I said, I hope people had fun. And and let's all hope I don't gain the powers of Superman. because that might turn bad. Um, but, you know, it was a good time. And, you know, if you want to get better at poker, I recommend my book for tournament play. And if you want to reach out to me for private lessons, you can find me at fossilmanpoker.com or you can find me at fossilman on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. And we can set something up. Awesome. 
Sounds good. Well, uh, th thank you, Greg. I appreciate it. It's been uh, real fun getting to know you uh, and, and speak to you for this uh, for this show. Uh, thank you all for tuning in to another episode of Cards Chat. I'm Robbie Straczynski. You can follow me on Twitter at Card Player Life, and I wish you all a wonderful day. Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community. <laughs>